Turn to Judges chapter 14. Judges 14. So I've been waiting for a Sunday where we would have some thunder to accompany this series to make it seem more legit. So today is that day. So I'm hoping God times it perfectly when I get real loud, like the thunder starts happening outside and make it more interesting. So Judges chapter 14. Today we're looking at uh, the life of Samson once again. And if you remember at the beginning of the series, we talked about a man named Gideon. And we said that Gideon was a weak man that God made strong. Now Samson is the opposite. Samson was known for his what? His strength, also his, his hair. And his hair and his strength were kind of tied together. And so Samson was someone who was physically strong, but he had a ton of weaknesses, character flaws. And so Samson's a strong man with many weaknesses. Gideon was a weak man who became strong. So uh, Samson is physically strong, but he's also violent. He's lustful. He's impulsive. He's selfish. And the most disturbing thing about Samson, though, is that Samson... God seems to use his sin and his weakness to actually accomplish his will. This is the part of Samson's life that is a puzzle to many scholars because they wonder, okay, this guy had a horrible life in many ways, but God used those sins to accomplish his will and his purposes. It's a little bit confusing when you look at Samson on the surface. So look at me in Judges chapter 14. We're going to start in verse uh, 1. And I'm going to ask you guys to... Um, just put your cell phones away unless you're using it for scripture. Turn your chairs this direction. I don't want to see any backs to the stage, that sort of thing. Yes, you have to look up here. Sorry. Just the way it goes. Uh, Judges 14, verses 1 to 3. So Samson is now a man. He's a grown adult. And it says, Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Ooh, okay, so... He sees one of the daughters of the Philistines. So who are the Philistines? The Philistines were the enemies of Israel, but they were were oppressing Israel. But there was actually a pretty peaceful coexistence between the Philistines and the Israelites. The Philistines were in charge, but they weren't that mean to the Israelites, at least not at the time. And so they lived a pretty peaceful coexistence with them to the point where, you know, they might actually start dating each other, right? So uh, look at verse 2. Then he came up and told his father and mother... I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. And whenever I think of Samson, I always picture him talking like Arnold. You know, you know who Arnold is? If I say Arnold, you know who I'm talking about, right? Okay, Arnold, right? So uh, I picture him and all of his lines in this story sounding like Arnold. So he says, now get to for me as my wife. That's just how I, I hear him in the story. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives, or among all our people, that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, all together now, say it, say it, the Arnold voice. (laughs) Yes, just like that, that was great. Get to for me, for, I love this line, for she is right in my eyes. Like that's, she's hot, she's attractive. Like, try, try that line out at school and see how that works out for you. So he can ask the prom, that girl, because she's right in my eyes. She's dreamy. She's dreamy. So, uh, so Samson is looking for a wife 
and he comes across a Philistine who's the enemy of Israel, and he wants to marry a Philistine. And instead of Samson, he's supposed to be the guy who delivers them from the Philistines. Instead, he wants to marry one of them. So you see how far he's, he's fallen here. In that, in that day, uh, parents were involved in the marriage decision. Many times they were the ones that decided who the person was going to marry. Aren't you glad that's not the case today, right? Um, but parents were at least involved, if not would make the decision on, okay, that's going to be your wife, and uh, you're going to live happily ever after, whether you like it or not. And uh, so instead, though, Samson has reversed the tables. He is now telling his parents what they're going to do. Instead of them telling him, Samson, we've prayed about this, we feel God leading us this direction, and we're going to have you marry this girl Instead of that, Samson is turning the tables around and he is telling his parents what they're going to do and they now have to obey him. Verse 3. The funny thing about this story is that his parents offer one of their relatives as a better alternative. He says, come on, I mean, a Philistine? I mean, why can't you find someone among our relatives, right? You see, back then... Marrying a relative wasn't as big of a deal or that big of a deal. And this is before the invention of Arkansas. So, <laughs> so this wasn't an issue um, as much back then. Partly because, I mean, just convenience, right? Like, who do you mostly know? It's probably going to be your family, your cousins, and so on. In fact, you may not know this, but did you guys know that Abraham and Sarah in the Bible were actually half-brother, half-sister? Did you know that? You didn't know that, did you? It's true. So it was not uncommon for there to be like intermarrying among the family. It wasn't weird or, or awkward or anything like that among them. So um, it was common to marry a cousin. So just imagine this, you know, mom and dad saying things like, all right, um, we're going to find you a wife. We're going to have a family reunion, right? Maybe you'll find one of your cousins. And so this was not an awkward or weird thing in that day. And so... Um, but here's the real key, though. Listen, here's the real key. The reason why God does not want them marrying the Philistines, this was not a racial issue. It was a religious issue. Mentioned before, God knows that if they start intermarrying and so on with other nations, they're going to begin worshiping those nations' idols. And so this was not a racial issue. It was an interfaith issue. I want to spend some time just on this one topic of why is it that God doesn't want Christians intermarrying with other non-believers? Because there's one part of it that it, it feels kind of cult-like, right? If you say to a non-Christian, yeah, I'm a Christian, and I'm not allowed to really date or marry a non-believer, they might look at you and say, like, what is that, like a cult or something? And I can kind of see what they're saying when they think that. But I want you to understand this morning why it is that God lays this out for the Israelites that also lays it out for us in 2 Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 on the screen there, verses 14 to 16, where Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, another name for Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. You see, um, uh, the word yoked, this word yoked does not just mean marriage. It actually means more than that. It actually means certain business partnerships, 
Um, I would say certain friendships would fall into this category. Yes, as a Christian, you should be friends with unbelievers. But I'll ask you this question. If your most entangling friendships, your closest friendships, are all unbelievers, I'd be a bit concerned about that. And the reason for that is because they may have moved beyond just a friendship or you're trying to reach them for Christ, where now they are reaching you for the world. It can reverse. And so certain friendships might fall in that category, not to say that you shouldn't try to be a witness. You've got to be a different kind of witness, though, in those kinds of friendships. I would definitely put marriage in this category. Um, and this, yes, this even includes dating relationships. And so just think about this. If someone is, the word yoked, what that means is that you're, you're so tied to this person. So like in a business partnership, you're so tied to this person that they're going to begin leading you astray and pulling you away from God. I talked to my, uh, my mom yesterday. Is my mom in the room, by the way? She's over here. Okay, she's, she's in town visiting this week, so you can give her a hand for being here. She's, she came here to see you. And uh, she's watching our kids this week while we're in uh, Colorado, so it's going to be a fun week for her. Right, Mom? Yeah. Um, so, uh, but she, she shared a story with me yesterday about this, this friend of my brother. So my brother's a doctor. He's got some money, so he's, he's investing in some rental properties. But he's sort of tied right now to this friend of his from high school who's not a good dude. And she's relaying the story of just how, how kind of messed up this other guy is and how unethical. He doesn't have integrity, no character. And the business dealing is just kind of going down the tubes because, why? They're unequally yoked in a way in a business partnership. It's not a good situation. If that's true in a business partnership, then imagine how true it is in a marriage. Imagine how true it is in a dating relationship. And, and I would say this. Many of you think to yourself, well, it's not, it's just, it's not marriage, it's just dating. I would say you could argue that in a way you are even more entangled to dating because you're trying to accommodate the other person and their beliefs so they'll want to stay with you, right? You change things, you change things about yourself because you're trying to win them over and trying to say, look, yeah, I want you to stay with me, I want to stay in this relationship. And so you will make more um, conciliations, you will make more uh, compromises in that situation then you might even in marriage because you're trying to win them over and keep them with you. And so it definitely would include a dating relationship. And so Samson is going after this person that he knows his people are not supposed to be engaging with, marrying especially. And so Samson is this small window, this small example, this small microcosm of what's happening in the entire nation of Israel. He has no self-control. He's impulsive. His senses control him. His, he sees something and he just takes it. He's rebellious against his parents. He's rebellious against God. And he's a picture of the nation of Israel themselves. You know, as I look back just on the students I've had in the last 10 years, I would say there are two really good predictors whether or not someone's life is going to become a train wreck. And it's these two things. It is no self-control, and it is rebellious against authority. Those two things, if those two things are present in your life right now, I'm just going to warn you, 
that your life is on the track to be a train wreck. The guy I described to you a while ago that's with my brother in this business partnership, I knew him in high school. His life was a train wreck waiting to happen. You could see it coming. If you have these two things in your life, no self-control, rebellious against authority, those two things, I'm going to tell you, it's not going to go well for you. Your life will be a train wreck. Some of you guys are on that pathway, that track right now as I speak, and you know it. And it's not just me, it's the Holy Spirit convicting you right now and convicting you and telling you, yes, he's talking about you. This is the pathway that you're on yourself. Look at Judges chapter uh, 14, verses uh, 4 to 7. It says, his father and mother, where was I? Was I on the right? Yeah, okay, right spot. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So this is where it gets kind of tricky because the Bible is telling us that, that Samson going after this Philistine, which is sin, is actually part of God's plan in a weird way, twisted way. God's going to use this to hopefully redeem the situation and try to pull the Israelites and the Philistines apart from each other. Because right now they're all intermingled together. And so God's going to use this for his own will. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, there's that word again, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and of course, she was right in Samson's eyes. Now, so um, this is like fantasy world stuff. This is like uh, video game stuff. This is stuff, can, can you physically picture a man being attacked by a lion, having nothing in his hands, and somehow tearing this lion to pieces um, with his bare hands. I, I can't even picture what this would look like, right? That'd be one of those like crazy when humans attack animal shows, right? And uh, it would make the news for sure. So, um, and I love how the writer does this. The writer gives us this picture. It's, the writer says, so in case you're having trouble picturing a, a human tearing into a lion with their bare hands, you know, it's, it's kind of like when you tear into a young goat, you know, because everyone does that, Right? Everyone's tried that before, right? No, you haven't? So it's just me. Um, so back then, though, that might be more common. So he's trying to give a picture of, like, picture a small little goat, a little cute goat, and, uh, and, and Samson tears into this lion like it's just nothing. Like it's just paper mache, nothing, just comes apart. And, uh, and this is what he does. Now, here's what's really funny about this story to me. So he kills this lion with his bare hands. Then he goes and sees the girl, right? Imagine this picture. He still has blood on his, whatever he's wearing, right? Of course, Samson's probably, his, probably, his shirt's probably off, right? He's, he's Samson, so he's walking around like, like the guy from Twilight all the time, but his shirt off all the time. So, um, so he's, he's proud of himself. He's got some blood on his chest. He's got some blood on his hands. And um, I'm sure at this point he utters, the best pickup line ever, 
where he says, um, uh, I just killed a lion, right? And so, um, and I'm sure her heart's fluttering at this moment, right? Um, this is the man for me. He's so strong and, and so, uh, so manly. And so, um, so look at verse 8 here, uh, Judges 14, verse 8. It says, after some days, he returned to take her. All right? So we learn from, about Samson very quickly that he's not a guy who just takes no for an answer, right? He just shows up and he just takes her. Like, she's, she's mine. Like the Arnold voice again, like, she's mine, I want her, right? And she's going to be mine. He just takes Can you imagine Samson as a prom date? It would not go. Can you imagine him slow dancing? Like, he would kill three people, like, while he's slow dancing, probably, right? So he's not the most gentle guy, not the most, like, pliable, flexible type guy. And it says, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, the one he just killed. And behold, there's a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. Because I guess bees like to build their nests inside dead lions. And there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out in his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them and they ate. But he did not tell them he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. So, so why is this such a big deal? Someone just shout it. Why is it a big deal? All right, he took the Nazarite vow. At least he had one since he was, since he was born. He had the Nazarite vow since he was born. He can't touch anything that's dead. And so not only does he touch a dead lion here, but he uses the lion for, like, his plate. Like, I'm going to eat food off this thing, right? And, uh, and so he, um, he's sinning in more ways than one here. He has no regard for his vow. And what we see with Samson here is that Samson, whenever he wants something, he just takes it. He's totally ruled by his senses and his impulses. He sees the girl, I want her, right? And he just takes her. He sees the honey, he's like, hey, it's in a dead lion, I can't touch the dead lion, I'm a Nazarite, I'm taking the vow, but he just takes it anyway. He's just a guy who walks around, walks through life, just feeding his impulses, has no self-control, and this is the life that, the trajectory that Samson is on. Not only does he sin himself, but he causes his parents to unknowingly sin. This is what this kind of person does. This kind of person, they have no regard for their own life, but also no regard for anybody else's life. He causes his parents to break that law as well, eating from an unclean animal. Has no regard for them and their faith either. Look at verse uh, 10. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. For so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. So they're preparing like a wedding feast now for this woman. And so what happens is all these Philistine friends show up, 30 of them, to this wedding feast. And 
they're going to have a seven-day feast for a wedding. Most of us, we go to a wedding, and it's like it's, it's dinner, and it's over. This is a seven-day feast. So a big party's about to happen for this wedding. And, but imagine this, though. Imagine you go to a wedding. I'm going to like three weddings like in a row in the next like two months, uh, former students of mine. And yes, I am getting old, so I feel really old about that. Um, but imagine if I show up to their wedding and the first word out of the groom's mouth is like, hey, Dave, I got a little wager for you. You're gonna, I'm going to bet you 30 sets of clothes. You can't get this right. Like I'm sitting there going, Dude, I brought you a gift. I mean, it's not a very good gift, but I brought you a gift, right? And and you're going to try to get more money out of me and more stuff from me. And so Samson, you see his selfishness. You see his, his willingness to take a risk. He's gambling. He's like, hey, let's make this a party. We've got good food. We've got gambling. We've got all that we need to have a party um, to celebrate this, uh, this sinful wedding of mine, right? And so he does this to gain wealth, to gain prestige. But I also think he does this because he wants to tell someone about his feat of strength, right? He knows it's wrong. He can't really do it, so he can't be out, he can't be out front about it. But he's kind of playing with the truth now and, and wanting people to guess about this lion incident and knowing that um, he's the one who killed this lion with his bare hands. He's, he's playing with the truth now, wanting to have them guess so he can tell his story at this wedding. This really fits his personality, doesn't it? He's always looking for a shortcut, always looking for a way to gain something from other, from other people He's selfish, wants wealth, wants prestige. He wants to be the guy everyone's talking about. And these are his Philistine friends at this wedding. I'm going to summarize for you, uh, Judges, just uh, verses 15 to 18. So the Philistines, they convinced Samson's wife to trick Samson into telling her the riddle. And she succeeds, and she comes back and she tells the Philistines, here's the riddle, and so you guys go tell him the riddle now so you can get your clothing that you want. And, uh, and so they know he's talking now about the honey and the lion incident. So Samson loses the bet, and now he's got to pay up with these garments of clothing. But watch how he goes and gets these garments of clothing. Look at verses uh, 19 to 20. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who he had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. This is like a reality show now, right? So Samson is so upset that his wife told the riddle that the way he gets the clothing is he goes and kills 30 dudes, takes their clothing, probably smears blood all over it just to spite him, right? Brings it back and says, like, here's your clothes. Then he runs home to mommy and daddy's house. Leaves the party completely. Leaves the wedding completely. Leaves his wife there. So the father of the bride, he thinks that, well, Samson's out of the picture now, I guess. So I'm going to give her to his best man. And so he gives her over to the best man. So Here's a summary. I'm going to summarize for you the entire chapter of Judges 15 just very quickly. Here's the summary points for you if you want to look at the screen. So Samson finds out his wife was given to the best man. In anger, he goes and burns the grains of the Philistines, the fields of the Philistines. The Philistines retaliate now, 
by killing Samson's wife and her father-in-law. The Israelites get upset at Samson for angering the Philistines now. So now Samson has a war on two fronts against the Philistines and his own people. The Israelites are like, Samson, why did you tick off the Philistines? They're going to kill us. So his own people are upset at him as well. The Israelites now arrest Samson and then turn him over to the Philistines in Judges 15. And then as a result, Samson kills 1,000 Philistines with a donkey jawbone. That's it. That's Judges 15 in a nutshell, okay? Now here's what I want you to see about this whole story. God uses sinful people, flawed people, once again, to bring about his will. Not saying sin is good or righteous or correct, it's not. But God has a way of using even sinful situations and redeems it and uses it for his own will and his own purposes. So what God does is the Israelites and the Philistines are entwined together as nations. God wants to break them apart, have the Israelites be a holy people once again. And so because of that, he uses Samson and this little situation with the woman to begin to put a wedge between those two people groups so God can have his nation back once again. That's the big picture of the story. But I want you to kind of see the smaller picture this morning as well. Samson is a supremely gifted, at least externally. He's a very gifted person externally, but internally he is flawed. In his heart, in his character, he is messed up. He is talented, he is gifted, but on the inside he is a completely broken man. Completely broken. It is possible for us to be really gifted, really good, even at things in ministry, but to be a complete wreck on the inside, to be destroyed on the inside, to have it all together on the outside and think, hey, I do all these ministry things, people look up to me, I have all kinds of strengths, they don't see my weaknesses, and what you were doing is you were hiding your weaknesses behind your strength in the same way that Samson did. And internally, we can be broken and flawed people. It's possible to have some gifts, but be completely shallow when it comes to holiness and character and integrity. You know, this was a great reminder for me. I mean, as a pastor, I mean, trust me, there are some tough weeks that you have. There are weeks where your heart's not really in it. There are weeks where you feel like you're on autopilot. And this passage was a reminder to me, as a pastor, you can have all these things happening, programs and impact and mission trips, and it's a reminder for me that I've got to watch and guard against being internally broken in the same way that Samson was. I cannot take that for granted. I can't just pretend. I can't do the program and expect that to be my walk with God. It's not. There has to be the internal life and the external life. Tim Keller uh, says this. He says, the gifts of the Holy Spirit can operate in us even mightily, and we can be helping people and leading in movements, yet our interpersonal lives can still be a complete wreck. In fact, this pattern is so common that there may regularly be a link between an impressive outer life and a broken inner life. 
I would say that if someone seems to have it all together on the outside and they're just supremely gifted and talented at what they do, that all of us should be guarded against that and, and wonder, and in ourselves as well, wonder, I've got to guard myself from being a man like Samson. Very often the person with the impressive outer life is broken on the inside. I want to tell you a story about a guy named Joel Hunter. He's a pastor in Orlando, Florida. And every uh, couple of years, as a staff at TBC, we'll go and we'll, we'll fly to a city and we'll go and meet with people at churches, their staff and their elders, and just hear what they do with their churches and get feedback and try to learn and grow as a, as a, as a staff. And so four years ago, we went to Orlando, Florida, and we actually got to meet with this guy. He's a pastor of a church called Northland Church in Orlando. A really gracious guy, genuine, spent about two hours with us as a staff and just talked through what they do as a church and how um, we asked him lots of questions about how to do church better and more effectively, and, and he helped us in, in some great ways. And so we left that church. The same day, we went over to his son's church. His son also has a church named Isaac. The next picture is a picture of Isaac. And uh, this is his son, Isaac. And he launched a church called Summit Church in Orlando, Florida about, uh, I think, 15 years ago. It grew from 90 people when he first launched it to over 5,000 people in about five years. You could sense that they're just kind of a growing and moving church and just very successful as far as the world standards go. A couple of years ago, I heard that Isaac, who we met with, left his wife committed adultery, left his church, ran off with his secretary, left his kids, had three kids, beautiful wife, just left her. And in this past December, he shot himself in the head. This guy that we met with four years ago left this suicide note <clears throat> for his family. I would very much like to be remembered as a person who loved his children, his parents, his brothers, and his best friends, well, while I could, I fear I will love them better in my absence as I have become what I never wished to be, a burden on those I love the most. If your life has no self-control, if you're rebellious against authority, your life is on a pathway to be a train wreck. And the signs are there now. Like if I'm saying that and you, you're convicted by that, the signs are there now. Like you, you know who you are. The signs are there now. This is someone who had an impressive outer life, successful church, thousands of people, successful family, but a completely broken inner life. So how do you know if that's you right now? How do you know if that's us? How do you know if it's me? I would say it doesn't have to be that you have a bunch of secret addictions right now or that you have all these major, major internal struggles right now that no one else knows about. I think it could be more subtle than that. In fact, Tim Keller says, our prayer life is the best indicator of our spiritual health. And let me tell you guys, when I read that line this week, it was like a knife just went into my stomach. Because I, I'll tell you honestly, as your pastor, that's me. That's me. I do not feel like I have a good, healthy prayer life. Do I pray? Yes. 
I don't feel like I have a good, healthy prayer life. And when I read those words, I thought, man, that's, this is how the enemy gets in. He starts to divide you, in a sense, from fellowship with God through prayer, through reading your Bible. He starts to give, remind you of things that um, you should be doing besides spending time with him. And I felt hugely convicted by that statement. Because I don't feel like, I feel like that's talking about me. I know it's also talking about you, but I want to talk about me for just a second because I feel convicted by this. Our prayer life, listen, our prayer life is the indicator of our spiritual health. It's not religious activity. It's not just attending programs. It's not mission trips. It's not impact. It is your communion with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. We can measure it that simply. What's your prayer life like? I've had to kind of retrain my thoughts in the last week or two because I've just been convicted by this. Just all the stuff I have to do in the day. I've got a big list on my phone of like, here's all I have to do today. And I've got to remind myself that no, opening up this book and talking to this God has to be the most important thing that I do in a day. If I do 25 things in a day, this has to be, this is the most important thing that I do, that you do. We, we've got to come to see it as that. Because if we don't, we're going to start to live this disjointed life, an impressive outer life, but a broken inner life as a Christian. Samson was someone, when you look at his prayers in this book, he was someone that he prayed selfish prayers. He's someone that prayed only for himself, only for what he wanted as a last resort. And so does our prayer life, does it spring from something within us that wants to commune with God, wants to have fellowship with God? Does it come from that place within us that says, yes, I want to be close with Jesus and have close fellowship with him? Does it come from that place? This morning, I want to um, just invite you to respond just very quickly. Just go ahead and close your eyes for a minute and uh, just bow your heads. And um, If you're someone who would consider yourself that you're not a believer, like you would put yourself in the category of, I'm not a follower of Christ. I'm thinking about it. I'm seeking possibly, but I'm not, I'm not quite there yet. I want to invite you this morning that... Um, if you don't know him this morning, if you're not following him yet, that you can decide today to follow after him. You can decide to live a different kind of life than what Samson lived. You can live a different kind of life than the pathway that you're currently on. And so I'm not going to lead you in some prayer. I just want you to think about that and pray silently to God even now or even when you get home later today and you think about it. But tell God, say to God, look, I've never decided to follow you. I've never put my faith and my trust in you, and I want to do that today. I want to commit my life to you today. That can be your decision today if you're an unbeliever today. If you are someone that is a believer, you're following Christ, you're, you're, on, you're in the struggle with everybody else, you're walking with him, you're trying to follow him, if that's you, then I want to invite you today to repent along with me in your prayer life, opening up the scriptures, following Jesus, obeying Jesus, rebelling against authority, 
lacking self-control, this is your chance as a Christian to repent and turn your life over to Christ in a sanctification kind of way. As Christians, we still need to repent. We've got to live this continual life of repentance. I want to pray for you this morning. God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we get to um, open your word and learn from a crazy story like Samson. Learn from a man who did hardly anything right, and yet you somehow used his story to show us that you can use flawed people just like us, but you also want to change us and grow us and sanctify us. We pray that for us this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Go ahead and have your discussion questions at your tables.